Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Today, Janelle and I are with Cheryl West Lewin. Cheryl holds a Master of Divinity. She's a preacher, liturgist, and former pastor. Cheryl has spent most of her career in K-12 and higher education, helping students discover what it means to belong in our diverse world. Her passion for intercultural, intergenerational, and interfaith friendships has guided her career as a DEI educator. She is the co-founder of Cardia House Consulting, which teaches generous communication as a means to resist polarization and move toward organizational health and relational wholeness. Cheryl is a TEDx speaker and event producer. She's also, she also just co-published a book titled Following the Way of Jesus, uh, a 12-week guide into peace and subversion. So go check that out on Amazon or wherever you use it, is Amazon and other places, I'm sure. Just look it up. We'll have it in the show notes. And we're going to dig into that probably today. It'll, it'll come up, I'm sure. Cheryl's married. She's lived in Waco, Texas with her two sons and a horde of cats. Janelle, you like that, for over 15 years. Her love language is articles sending, and her happy place is a lunch date with a friend, no clock, and uh, no COVID, right? That, that's even better. So today, we'll be talking to Cheryl about reimagining traditions in order to create spaces for belonging. Uh, Cheryl... Great to have you. This is going to be fun. And um, we, we always like to start with people's spiritual pedigree, religious background, and then how you ended up being the you that we're talking to today. Man, what's, what's your backstory real quick and your religious pedigree, so to speak? Sure. And thanks for having me, Ryan. I would say I was raised Southern Baptist, and that is something that many people say, and it means still, I think, a lot of things to different people and so I want to kind of give some caveat to that in that my parents were not staunchly Southern Baptist in the ways that some are I think they wanted to be faithful to kind of a social upbringing and in a place I grew up in Dallas where I like to say I grew up in the shadows of First Baptist Dallas and um, UT or not UT um, Southwestern Seminary and so the cultural social norms that were coming from those places had a lot more influence than really what their actual theology was so yeah that meant some Procter and Gamble boycotts at times and Disney chain mail that needed to be boycotted but we never really were good Christians because we couldn't stick it out very long and that's a, lot of, that's a um, lot of boycotting after a while like man this is tiring you know yeah it is my parents were also um, very young and so they they moved around from churches and we actually were members of some really i would say you know in texas baptist life substantial churches in terms of big names but they also were musicians and so we would move around for my mom to be a pianist or my dad to be a, a worship song leader or just for us to travel for my dad to sing specials if you know what that means mm -hmm. so my mom would play the piano and my job was to keep my brother off the stage because he was little and had separation anxiety and my dad and his big bass voice would sing some hymn at the offering so i grew up in going to a lot of little country churches and it wasn't really until I was in youth group that they decided we need to settle down and have a proper youth upbringing, which meant we needed to be in a youth choir that toured because that was really important. So we ended up in what isn't really a mega church in Dallas, but for most people, you know, 2000 members. And so I did the, the proper youth group thing. And then 
I was really beginning to be disillusioned in my own walk and my own understanding. By high school, I was in a diverse uh, public school and my friends were culturally and ethnically diverse but and sexual identity was beginning to you know be something that I understood and yet from the pulpit I was hearing you know we love God we love people but then I was also hearing at side lunches and and barbecues all the things that we don't love which is immigrants and gays and I couldn't quite reconcile those things with the same people and so when I turned 18, um, we had what we called mission congregations. I hate that terminology, but um, in the 80s, you could sponsor anybody to come into the country. And so a lot of Sunday school classes did that. And so there were all of these mission congregations at their old campus. They had white flighted north. And it was Cambodian, Bosnian, Korean, Vietnamese, and then a... Um, Spanish speaking of many countries. And so there's a ad in the bulletin that said that their Cambodian congregation was looking for a youth worker. And very unlike me, I showed up a few weeks after graduation and just kind of walked in. And I was there for seven years um, as part of that um, really multicultural experience. And it moves into a lot more story that we don't really have time for. But I met my husband there who's Cambodian American. And that's really led me on a trajectory of multicultural understanding, um, a deconstructing of scripture from a Western um, lens. I will throw in, just date myself, that that was the summer before 9-11. So I was in that context through 9-11, and that really sped up my deconstruction quite a bit. Yeah. So uh, today is, um, and we'll probably all talk a little bit about this with our own lives as well, but as we uh, get into this conversation about belonging. Uh, we we all recognize that you and probably Janelle and I as well, we we come through this framework through the lens of Jesus and you refer to him as a wisdom teacher. Uh, so can you just briefly touch on that specific title for the listeners as we unpack this ancient sage from Galilee? Sure. It's important for me and I think historically to look at Jesus in the context in which he walked and taught and to realize and remember that he was a rabbi first and he was a rabbi to those around him and he was very Jewish. And so to understand his writings and his teachings is to understand the way that wisdom teachers were teaching, which means like when we read the parables, they are turning things upside down. They're using ancient stories that have understood motifs and then changing something at the end to get people's attention. And so it's hard for us sometimes as Western thinkers who want to look for either allegory or we want to look for a particular meaning to draw from every story that often there was a question at the end to left to ponder or there was a particular uh, part of the story that was striking that maybe wouldn't strike us. And so um, these wisdom wisdom teachers really just come from a, a place of, of question and bringing people to really realize that you don't know all the things that you think you know and that there is more to discover. And that's a really important framework to, I think, free us up a lot when we look at Jesus and think, what in the world? That there was something behind 
what seems like madness at times. Yeah. And so then, so framing Jesus as that wisdom teacher, um, how does that then help us to like embrace paradox? Because I, I feel like that's a big part of this as well. I mean, it is not an easy task ever to embrace paradox, but we're Westerners, it's almost impossible. It's, it's against exactly, <laughs> exactly. But understanding that that isn't unusual, first of all, and that it was, I mean, not to say that it wasn't difficult then either, but that it's not an unusual teaching motif and that the paradox is a tool of discomfort that moves through growth. And that is a tool that helps us to, in many ways, realize that we're not in control, that we don't know everything. Um, if And I hate to then become very Greek right now, but help us check our little ego and our little self and then move um, into this idea of mystery and some of the more mystical ways that Jesus taught, which really weren't trying to give answers as much as trying to bring people into this new way of thinking. And that new way of thinking was going to require a setting aside of some of these like old paradigms. And that is a paradox. Yeah. Um, I know we could probably talk about paradox for a long time. I think, I think we've, Janelle, we've even, we've even done like two hours on paradox before, but yeah. a, it, I, I think it's important. I actually, I, I would like to revisit it locally here uh, within the Waco community that this could be a whole other conversation. So I know that we're going to, we're going to keep moving down this trail. You, I wanted to kind of define terms. I think that's helpful for people as well. Um, and so in this context, you know, you talk about the ego self and you mentioned the false self, the true self, the dualistic mind, and then the non-dualistic mind. Um, so I know there's a, lot, there's a lot of like words there for people, but um, that's also been helpful for, for you as you then unpack Jesus as a sage, then diving into belonging. So uh, help us understand those terms and why they're important. Sure. With, you know, the the false self and the ego self, I've got a, it's hard for me not to do this visually in front of me, but the, the false self being, you know, who we present, it's who we want people to think we are. And it, it is often not malicious and it is often not something that we are aware of. It's just what we've built up over time. And the ego self is the the most wounded, smallest part of us that we try to protect. And that self often is what projects that false self, right? And then with this true self, it is what is it that we believe that God has made us to be that understands us as who we are, that we are most often so afraid to move into, to grow into, to show because it feels so vulnerable. And then did, I may have left one out. Did I leave, leave you hanging? There's the um, mind and the non-dualistic mind. Thank you. Thank you. With the dualistic mind, what kind of helps us move through the world with those blinders that makes things a lot simpler and it's a self-protection mechanism is if everything is either or us or them, this kind of black and white, black or white mentality, then we don't have a reason to question our false selves. We don't have a reason to grow in any way by questioning the, the possibility that there might not be an us or them. And so that true self really doesn't need to be nurtured. And so the non-dualistic mind is one that is able to say, you know, maybe it isn't us versus them. And maybe either or thinking is not that helpful. 
which leads us into this state of disorientation. And that disorientation, some people would call it deconstruction. I'm going to call it disorientation just because it's overused a little bit. This disorientation is a space that we experience often, but what off what we often do is we feel a little disoriented and we immediately back out of that disorientation because it doesn't feel good. But where growth comes is when we feel disoriented and we continue to push through it and we ask the questions and we sit with it, we hopefully find some community to do it with us and we move past that into some reorientation and we find out something new about ourselves, about the world, about God, about others, and we pick up something else that is far more beautiful than what we had before and that is non-dualistic, yeah. um, you know, uh, Paul Ricoeur talks about that second naivete and it's, you know, it's really one thing when you find that first naivete and you realize, oh, the world is not what I thought it would be, but it's that second naivete you realize, oh, I have to keep doing this over and over again. That's really hard. And so that's kind of that process of reorientation, moving into that disorientation back into reorientation. And so belonging is really realizing that even in that disorientation, that there is reorientation to come. And that the more that happens, the more your true self is revealed. And there's two things that really happen. One is that you become more at home with yourself, which is a big part of belonging, is not looking outside of yourself to belong. But then that you find people that you can belong with because you're not constantly defending yourself. You're not constantly putting on this mask and then being upset when it cracks and people see it. You're not working so, so hard to be someone you're not. You're able to move much freer in society and then things don't become so personal. Yeah. Does that makes, makes a little sense, hopefully. Yeah. It sounds like in your work that as you kind of move into this posture of reimagination, you like to use examples from Jesus, the sage in the gospels. Um, would you like to connect that into this? Cause I like one, one thing I just read this from a friend this week that, struggling to get her people to engage the Bible because they've either been hurt or they don't understand it. They feel confused. And so can you talk about how, how the gospels and Jesus's words there can help us in this process? I, I believe at our, our brew event, I used the example of Zacchaeus was one of the examples I used and how Zacchaeus is rejected for a number of reasons, uh, I think that we, even in our modern day interpretations, continue that rejection by caricaturing him as mm -hmm. short and unattractive and maybe unathletic. And we've just continued this motif that we enjoy making fun of. But really, he seems to be someone who has made a hard choice to betray his people to make money as a tax collector and seems to be lonely in that and really wants to see Jesus and has climbed in a tree to do that. And Jesus recognizes that effort, recognizes that desire and calls him out. He doesn't do it privately either and says, I'm coming to your house. And so it's a communal kind of restoration. It's a communal kind of moment and gives Zacchaeus the opportunity to do something different. He doesn't give him then this command of what 
he needs to do to restore himself to the community, Zacchaeus makes his own choice. But also for everyone in that community, there's this opportunity then to make some decisions about, is it us versus them? Is it really, I mean, we really don't like these guys and they take advantage of us, but is it maybe more complicated? Is there a non-dualistic way of looking at this? And and the question, why does Jesus want to eat with a tax collector? Which happens over and over again. Why does Jesus want to eat with so-and-so? Why does Jesus have them in their homes? And so I think that's maybe not the example that you're looking for, but I think it is a way of, of saying, what is the story really here? Is it just, oh, look at Jesus. He's such a good guy. He forgives. Or is it, what is Jesus teaching everyone else in that moment and what are the choice points that come along the way because if we're in that crowd how do we respond to jesus mm-hmm. yeah i think it's always funny because we you know we're here two thousand years removed in a totally different um landscape i mean that's to say the least we can go on and on about that and um these but these stories are so familiar to us i mean as you had mentioned zacchaeus i i think of the childhood song zacchaeus was a wee mm-hmm. little man and I never thought about like we we've created this little kind of caricature and, and he still is like the, not the bad guy, but he's still the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about, you know, I, until you you said that, I'm like, oh yeah, it does start at a very young age. These stories are just the familiar stories, but then the, how we frame them is so important. And I know you probably mentioned this in your, in your upcoming book. I don't know if you talked about this at the pub because that was a while back, but then Jesus talks about, uh, talks to the woman at the well, who's from Samaria. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're always like, yeah, look, you know, if you, if you bring that up to a lot of people, they often say, well, Jesus did tell her to go, you know, go and sin no more. And people want to jump to that. And they, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, would you even end up with talking to a woman in Samaria? I mean, like to make, to make that make sense today is really, that's, that's the biggest hurdle I think for people and, and not just to have the conversation with her, but then seeing her. Um, having her be seen and knowing her and having her be known um, people want to jump to it but he said but he said don't sin anymore right I'm like but can you even have those conversations to begin with um, I don't and understand. what sin and what sin is he referring to mm-hmm. I mean I don't know yeah what that sin is yeah, it's, well, it's just, how, it's, how often do we just jump to the sin like I think that's part of our problem right now is people are just jumping jumping to the sin go and sin no more without building relationship without having any sense of belonging and so then it just becomes this weapon that doesn't doesn't do anything it's 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 disembodied from the whole context of relationship yeah and i think that's we did talk about her a little bit at the pub and um, i think it was in some of the small groups but one of the the things about her that's so fascinating and that is hard for us to I think want to hear or or to wrap our heads around is that she dishes it back to Jesus mm-hmm. and Jesus doesn't say, you know, I strike the woman or, you know, off with your head or I don't know what would have happened back then, but let's take you to the center of town and stone you. Yeah. And certainly as a rabbi or just as a man, there's lots of things that could have happened in that moment is that he engages that conversation. and. How often do we prejudge, even if we think we have great information on someone and determine that they have no right to speak, they have no right to say anything into a conversation and just do not allow 
anything to come, you know, of of them that might bring about some like humanization mm -hmm. that's desperately needed. And not to say that we are the granters of humanization, because that's not really what that's about either, but just to be able to say this person has been through some things and they have some things to say and I'm I'm gonna listen to it because I'm here and maybe it's a weird place for me to be at a weird time, but I'm here and they're here. And so we're gonna have this conversation. Yeah, uh, so I know for, for all of us, we have our own different stories of, of uh, I guess, becoming in these spaces of uncomfortable belonging, as, as I guess you would call it. Like, you know, we've arrived, but we haven't arrived, and we're still trying to arrive, but we're never going to fully get there. Um, what are some of those sticky places for you, in, you know, just in specifics um, lately, um, currently, that you're working through of, of belonging and kind of both and just it, you don't obviously you don't have to give names but are there any contexts that kind of move you into that deeper space yeah that's a great question I think for me you know I'm in this really fascinating time in my life it's not new in that I've always had a lot of odd jobs I'll be honest I've been a freelancer um, I think Ryan you're after my own heart uh, a lot of projects and um things. I've only really had one long-term full-time gig that I just left in July, um, but it happened to be at a place that most of the people I know are also employed at. And so, and it has a lot of power and, and privilege within, you know, Waco. And so kind of figuring out how to navigate my own home being detached from that privilege of being in the know of being connected of you know suddenly having connection and friendship with or at least acquaintance with lots of people to being completely disconnected and out of touch with all of those people minus one or two and figuring out how to kind of navigate your own space you know own hometown and and the the people that you live in are with that's been a really interesting experience um, and I knew kind of as I was ending that time that one of the things I was uncomfortable with was the amount of privilege that it carried just everywhere to be there and you know there's pros and cons to that but it was something that I, I wasn't sure that I was comfortable with the rest of my life being about and so just really kind of checking my own privilege and my own um, ways in which I navigate a town that, you know, has really astronomical poverty rating and, you know, what does it mean to be a part of that community? And, you know, I'm thinking about this level of belonging, but what does that mean overall for others? And so those are some kind of sticky spots for me that I've been really kind of wrestling with. Yeah, hard. What, um, what what are some things that are guiding your steps as you go through that? I feel confidence the first word that comes to mind, so I'll go with it. I feel confident in my discernment, and I feel confident in the timing of decisions and that I don't really know where I'm going, so that's always interesting. But I've had the opportunity to do a couple things within the community that I feel like have really mattered that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise and and to be more grounded 
in those things and not worry about my income being attached to someone who may have to approve of what I'm doing. And so and that's really important to me and, and has been for a long time. And so being able to, um, whether it's a book or a community event or a talk or a sermon, that I can do those things um, feeling led by the spirit and then truthfully and honestly knowing that I'm not also thinking about, you know, employment, which is really what I would like to say in a prophetic voice, I would do anyway. And I, I think I have in many ways, but it's really important to me to be able to continue to do, do those things um, honest, honestly and authentically. Yeah. It sounds like a hard choice though. Um, and, and that comes with a lot of reflection and thought and, and also um, some willingness to walk into an unknown future how how has your work studying Jesus as a wisdom teacher kind of informed some of this? Um, and if that's too personal, that's okay. Because I, I, Ryan and I have both gone through this process at times too, and and I know that it's um, it's it can be very complicated and full of its own paradox. Yes, it can. <laughs> For me, I just you know, I mean, I was someone just like anyone who thought, well, let's try to find another thing first. You know, you don't quit before you have a place to land. And then, you know, it comes time to make the hard decision. I mean, you don't have to, but there does come a time when I think if you are really in that discernment process, that things sort of tip and you know that that exigency is upon you. And, you know, in terms of the you know, wisdom teacher, I think some of that has to do with even before the wisdom teacher, I'm a, a big fan of the minor prophets. And I mean, fan might be pushing it, but just this understanding in myself that one, I need to be able to sleep at night with what I'm doing and, and where I'm decisions I'm making, but two, that there are some things that about Jesus that are, are not really hard to understand in terms of it's this or this mm -hmm. and if I'm going to be honest about those things and say that this is what I'm following then I don't actually have a difficult decision to make I mean difficult consequences but not a difficult decision and as someone who has been you know not only a mentor and a pastor a preacher that has preached chosen to preach really difficult sermons, especially as a um, pulpit supply where you can do that. You know, it's just, it felt hypocritical to then take the safe bet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, what are the, what do y'all think some of the, like the, the hindrances, the roadblocks, just whatever gets in the way of, of creating this, uh, these healthy spaces, these brave spaces. I mean, I know within brew theology, we often talk about creating brave spaces because safe is often, Nothing's really ever safe once you're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You never know what people are going to do with that information. Absolutely. But, but it's brave enough to engage nonetheless. Because um, often we end up hanging out with the right same same people, right? Look like us, talk like us, think like us. Um, and I, I have to look back at my own life of like, what, when did I turn the corner? But I mean, for all of us, what are the things that we know get in the way and we have to actually work at it? Uh, I mean, is 
as a, as a white white male here. I mean, here I am. I I I've, re- I've realized that. Like I've like why well, I've back in the day. I'm gonna confess first. Here's my confession. I had a friend call me out on this years ago. He's like, you only like read white straight male authors. He's like, but you mm. call yourself progressive. And I was like, damn, <laughs> called me out. And that was good. So I had to then be intentional. I didn't even realize I was doing it. It just came naturally to me to listen to people who would think like me and sound like me. Um, so there's my first confession. Um, I, I'm, And I think you still work on these things. Like people who say, well, I'm not racist or I'm not um, homophobic or I'm not whatever that may be. You could say, well, I'm, I recognize that I'm prejudiced, but I'm also, I'm working through these things and I'm continuing. And you, you kind of refer to this earlier without maybe putting those harsh labels on, but I go, we, we kind of have them just, just from our upbringing, right? Not even intentionally, or it's not malicious. Like you said, it's not bad. It's just, this is the world that I grew up in or I was formed in. So I have to continually knock these things down. I have to continually like, re- read these authors and listen to these people who are different than me. Um, now it might be baby steps for people. Um, you know, I don't want to say like, go ahead and read some, some Buddhist thinker. Who's a different, like that might be hard, initially hard for somebody, but I eventually got to that point in my life. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some of those hindrances that y'all picked out in your, within your own lives as well? I get that. I'm only, I'm the only male in the room here, but there are other males listening. (laughs) So hindrances to, to creating these spaces, these places of belonging that are our truest selves if we were if we were honest about it but obviously the ego gets in the way so we don't do it yeah I have another talk about that Ryan I'll send that to you later um (laughs) you know one of the things that I think I've discovered about myself is understanding that those spaces don't last forever and that's okay I mean rarely do we come across that group of people that is meant for the long haul but sometimes we try to make it so that it's forever. And then as we kind of change and, out and grow, we can become really destructive within those spaces, trying to make them fit where we currently are. And it doesn't go well. And so kind of holding loosely to those spaces of belonging and being able to know when it's time to move on so that it's not this poisoned memory mm. because maybe you kind of help poison it on your way out every time. Mm. Um, that's a big one. I think also, you know, when we're unpacking things in real time with people, it's going to be messy. So some of that is determining, you know, to what extent, and you don't always realize you're unpacking and it just happens depending on the type of group, but to what extent are you doing your own work? on the side and then bringing it to people and to what extent is it happening always in real time in these sorts of settings because people are only doing their work within that group and no work on their own then it's a big burden you know for the group and it's not real growth I mean it's some but we all have responsibility to continue to to work on ourselves beyond that and so that can make make those groups Um, difficult. And then I think the elephant in the room is always recognizing who's there and who's not. So if your group is, you know, majority white and you have a couple people who aren't and kind of the attitude is, well, you're one of us and they may go along with that, but that doesn't mean that's how they feel or, or going to feel later that you've got to know who's in the room 
and what those differences are and and realize that homogeny is rarely really homogeny even if it is 12 white dudes yeah yeah i was gonna make a joke about the 12 disciples but i i'm gonna i'm not (laughs) (laughs) i think one of those things for me has just been um I, I was raised in a very fundamentalist tradition, and so that black and white thinking is something that I don't think I'm ever going to fully escape as, like, my kind of my default. And so really stepping away from judgment and really just what it looks like now, I guess, is almost just, like, if when I see it put its head up, like, acknowledging it, kind of like a you know, CBT therapy, I acknowledge you, but like, okay, let's stay in this place and actually engage what's going with what's going on. Um, and I, I feel like I made a lot of progress, but I'm, I know it's something that's going to be there the rest of my life. Cause it's just, it was so enculturated in that church system until I was almost 20, even after that. Um, and it was so enculturated in you know, roles for achievement and getting the good grade and doing it right and doing it correctly. And so having to step back and say that that's not the only measure here, nor am I the person that can say when everything is right and good. Um, And that's that's a constant rechecking for me um, in lots of areas. And, And I think while it's hard to step back from that sometimes it that's where the growth is is when you step back and enter into that that middle space for me are y'all often amazed at people when they show up for the first time and then think about your first time places where it is even as an extrovert i think about so yes janelle it's true even extroverts get squirmy in new settings i know it's hard for you to believe that it's a little bit yeah but it's 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 always impressive to see anybody, whether they're extroverted or introverted, to show up in a new space. Um, it's a big deal. It's huge, yeah. And I, you know, I remember in the church world, even you know, within working in that world specifically, it was all about like it was an interesting posture with like how we we're supposed to reach out to the newbies, the new people. And it, I don't know if it was always healthy, you know, because that was always about like growth and, as they say, closing the back door and getting them involved. And I'm like, well. What if it was just to, I mean, get to know them? I mean, regardless if they if, if they never come back again, right? Or they never believe what what we believe here, you know. I mean, that's I think often we have agendas for people, and that's that's a huge thing that I know I had to work on years ago of not having an agenda for people that come into the spaces that I occupy uh, or I think I occupy, right? That I as if I have ownership over the space, right? <laughs> Maybe that's a part of it, like releasing your 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 preconceived notions of like, I don't own this space. That would be, that would be an interesting take, you know, to have. And, but I don't think we were taught that very, very well growing up or even in our adult years. Right. No. And that's actually one of, I'm a Baird and I aren't going to a regular congregation right now. And one of our fears is, is, you know, how many weeks is it going to take before they put the hook in that we need you to stack chairs or, can you fill in in the nursery? And like, I'm not interested in that right now. And I'm not interested in being treated that way. Um, I want to show up somewhere and be able to, to reorient to church life um, and not feel like it's a task that has to be fulfilled. And I'm 
we've we've talked a lot about our kind of concern about that is there a space like that where you can just show up and be and let that be okay Mm -hmm. yeah people are pretty smart too they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for they can smell that a mile away Mm -hmm. which is why probably a lot of people don't go into some spaces because they're like no they're they, they have an agenda for me yeah yeah well i know that uh as as we come to a close here we could we could talk all morning and that would be fun um but what i guess what are some take-home challenges cheryl that you would have for for listeners if you have any or if you have any paradoxical statements or things to thump people on the head before they they stop listening here hopefully you haven't stopped listening oh that just seems cruel <laughs> I unfortunately am not a rabbi, so I don't know that I can pull that off, but I think just kind of takeaway statements is to have patience with yourself and grace with yourself and others that it is not an easy journey, but it is one worth continuing and continuing with others as you go along the way, whether they are like-minded or not is up to you, but it is way more interesting when they are not. I will say that. Yeah. And, you know, part of belonging is not finding people who are just like you, but are people who see you and will hear you and who want to know you. And that can come at the most unexpected time and from the most unexpected places. And if you're willing to be open to that, then, you know, much like the people who Jesus met in many places who I know did not expect someone like Jesus to enter their path. That openness, I believe, um, is so much part of what makes us human and what makes us have the ability to connect and belong and makes life so much richer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cheryl. And um, also for those who are listening, following the way of wisdom, Jesus, a 12 week guide into peace and subversion that just came out. Uh, so you can uh, get that on Amazon and look at Cardia house. That's with a K A R D I a house consulting as well. And Cheryl's got some good stuff in there. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you like the episode, it. share it online. We're at brew theology, Instagram and Facebook and at Brew underscore theology on Twitter, the Twitterverse, if that's still around. If it's still there. We'll see. (laughs) Peace.